It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so, so that by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to the glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children uh, God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How someone deals with a problem tells you a huge amount about them. It tells you, it shows you, how far they're willing to go to sort it out. And it, it shows you how deeply they care about the situation. Uh, this morning, uh, you saw um, Caleb alongside Matt being brought for baptism. And obviously, I know Caleb much better. And it, it's, difficult, it's difficult to believe, after he just didn't cry or anything, that he produces problems. But he really does. And without getting too graphic, I want to tell you about a particular type of problem he produces. Uh, it's universally known as a poo-splosion. Uh, it normally happens uh, early in the morning. Probably breakfast has just been finished. I'm coming back in from the kitchen, having delivered the dishes. And as I cross uh, the threshold of the door, the first telltale sign is that, yeah, aroma. What a word. <laughs> the aroma. <laughs> And I realize what's happened. Uh, not only is the nappy full, it's overflowing. Somehow it's got through not just one, but two layers of clothing. And mystery of all mysteries, it's on his hands. <laughs> How's it getting on furniture already? And so my first thought, Louise. <laughs> but honestly, when you face a problem like that, uh, there are really only two options. Option one. Is it, is it repulses you. You think, well, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. He did it. You think, oh, the mess. The mess is too much. It's too costly. 
If I get involved in cleaning that up, it's going to get on my hands, it's going to get on my clothes, I'm going to have to have a change, I'm going to be late for work, that's an embarrassing phone call, and the smell has only got worse. I think, well, perhaps I could stand at the doorway and throw wet wipes and see if he'd clean himself up. Or I could play the daft husband. Play. I could play the daft husband, and I could call up to Louise, I'm off to work, see ya. <laughs> Interesting that she'll clean it up rather than me. The problem repulses you, that's one option, or there's option two. It is this, that because I love him, in the midst of his mess, yeah, that he's caused, but because I love him, I would move towards him, knowing the mess, knowing the cost, I would go to him to fix the problem, to be the solution. How someone deals with a problem, it just reveals loads about them, doesn't it? How far they're willing to go. How deeply they care. And that's why this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at how God has dealt with our deep human problem. How far he was willing to go, how deeply he cared. In short, what we're going to do is we're going we're to take a look at God's heart as we come to look at the the incarnation, the beating heart of what we celebrate at Christmas. Uh, We're going to do that by um, being based in Hebrews chapter 2, that uh, passage that we just had read to us from the Bible. It's on page um, 1204 if you've closed it. We'll keep referring back to it. Um, This week we are taking a look at the the kind of the why, the heart of God in the incarnation. Next week, we're going to see more about how the incarnation is part of God's great solution. But today, two big sections of what we're going to hear. Humanity's problem and God's solution. This section of Hebrews, it doesn't doesn't start by diving in with humanity's problem. It actually starts um, somewhere quite different by, by quoting a poem from the Old Testament that's asking a question. It's asking this question, God, if you're so great, if you're so far above the angels, if you're so amazing, why do you care about us? Why do you care about little human beings who are lower than the angels? Why do you care? Just a detail here about the poem, how it works. Take a look at verse 6. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It's speaking at this point about all of humanity. But the poet is kind of using a poetic idea to use one person as the representative of all other humans. So when he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? He's saying, what is mankind? What is humanity that you care about us? And what's the answer? Well, we see it in verse 7. God has made us glorious. Verse 7, there it is. You have crowned him, us, with glory and honor. God has made us human beings glorious to reflect his glory. God's been eternally glorious, eternally loving, 
because of who he is. You'll have noticed that as we um, baptized today, we baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christians believe in a God who is one and three, eternally glorious, Father eternally giving gloriously love to the Son, Father and Son eternally giving, pouring out love to the Spirit. And so human beings, us, we were made to reflect that glory by giving, pouring out love back to God and one to another. Why does God care about us? Because he's made us glorious. But not only has he made us glorious, he's also given us an incredible job. That word crowned isn't an accident. It's really very important. You see, God has given us a job that reflects his job. He is the creator of the world, is the rightful ruler of the world. Not to domineer, but to bless. And he's given us that same job under him. He's crowned us to rule the world, to to nurture the world, so that everything and everyone might flourish. He's made us like little prime ministers, or a cabinet, or or princes and princess regents over the world, so that we might, under him, bless everything. Do you know that we're actually made for a world where everything is right and works? That's what God intended for us, that we would be glorious and we would rule the world so that it would be a flourishing, blessing place. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. That as we go through life and things are going really well, we don't go, oh, why is everything going so well? We just accept it because we know that that's the way it's supposed to be. It fits. And yet when things are going wrong and how often they go wrong, we're asking, why? Why, God, would it be like this? How come? Because we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. Why does God care about us? Because he's made us glorious and he's given us an amazing job to bless the world. But as we come to the end of verse 8, we begin to see the problem that humanity is facing unfold. It's a problem that we know very well and it is one of the great understatements of the Bible, I think. It says this, at present, right now, We do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't see everything under our control for good and glory and blessing. Far from it. Actually, isn't our experience that everything feels far out of control? When you think of the grand canvas of humanity, what have we got? We've got a climate crisis and an economic crisis and a war in Europe crisis. When you take a step closer to to our our lives, the canvas of our lives, our relationships, they're so often, even though we want them to be good, broken or out of control. There's something wrong in them. I wonder if we've even experienced that this week. Words in the office, sharp, rude, past relationships leaving shadows, and wounds. Even within our own families, we don't want it to be like that, and yet we find that it is. Everything's meant to be under our control, yet 
That's not our experience at all. And what about if we take one step closer to the the personal canvas of our own hearts? What do we find there? Well, they're not under our control either, are they? Our desires so often twisted not to be what they're supposed to be. Out of kilter. Even when we we know what we're meant to do and, and kind of want to do it, we find ourselves that we're too weak, we're too lazy. We find ourselves unwilling to do the loving of other people that we know we should and instead we pursue greed and gain instead. And of course, that doesn't even begin to think about the things that we've got in our hearts that we never like to bring to the surface to even think about. Too much shame. Too much guilt from the past. Too much something. We find, we find this world on the grand canvas and on the small canvas. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's not under our control. It's just as the Bible says here. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to us. I came across a quote by Blaise Pascal. He was a French genius, basically. He was a mathematician, but amazing at everything. Philosophy, theology, just the lot. One of those guys that's probably amazing at football, too. And And he... He said this in his quote, I'm just going to paraphrase it a bit, but he basically said, human beings, they're a huge paradox because they are both glorious, they're amazing, capable of so much good, and yet we choose garbage. Yet we choose rubbish, garbage, again and again. We we exchange the, the glory that we're made for, for garbage. It seems a bit harsh, a bit bleak, but actually it's not, is it? We open our newspapers and we know it's true. We honestly look in our own hearts. We know it's true, capable of great good and yet garbage. Though we were made for glory, we've exchanged it for garbage. Each one of us, all human beings, from the very first, all the way down to us. And that means that we're not just like we like to think, we're not just victims in this world. We're vandals of this world because we've exchanged the the truth and glory of God for garbage. It's what we've chosen. Not just victims, but vandals. And that, that is why we're subject to the second part of the problem that humanity faces. That is the terrifying shadow of death. It's there in verses 14 and 15, the terrifying shadow of death. When you front it face to face, the reality is that death is terrifying, isn't it? And our culture doesn't know what to do about it. It hates it. It doesn't know how to talk about it. It just tries to hide it. I just think so many of us wouldn't wouldn't let our own children go to a funeral because because somehow it's, it's not fitting. We don't think it's good, even though we know that it lies in each one of their futures. When I talk to my friends about death, my friends that don't actually believe in anything beyond, that just believe in the material world that there is, 
when our, our own friends have died or relatives have died and we, we talk about it, they find themselves saying something like this. Well, they're in a better place. And I think what's going on there is that in that moment, they want to say something that feels better. I don't grudge them that at all. But I notice it's not quite fitting, is it? Death. The shadow of death, it is the great equalizer. We could spend our lives building a wonderful business, a fantastic home, a wonderful family, and yet the shadow of death will swallow it all. Everything in our lives that we think brings delight and joy and happiness, the shadow of death looms over it because it will swallow it all. And we're helpless in its face. No matter how much we throw at healthcare or eating better or exercising more, we are helpless in its face. Our section puts it like this. They were subject to lifelong slavery, end of verse 15, through the fear of death. What's the problem facing humanity according to this section? Well, helplessly, helplessly, we face the terrifying shadow of death because we've exchanged the glory of God for garbage. And honestly, I, I'm sure that at least 50% of the room is saying, this is so bleak. I thought I came for a baptism. But it's true. So come with me now then. Come with me now to see what God has done in the face of this terrifying, awful problem. What was his response? What was his response? His response was to move towards us. His response was to move into the mess. It is the great miracle, the beating heart of the Christian faith, that he came to us in the incarnation as God incarnate. That word, incarnate, was an absolute mystery to me for the first few years of me becoming a Christian. I had no idea what it meant until someone explained it to me using a can of chili con carne, and so I'm going to do the same thing. We all know what this means. Well, we're going to work out what this means. We've all seen chili con carne. Here it is. Chili con carne. Chili, we all know what that means. It's a spicy fruit, if any of you tell me. Uh, spicy fruit. I'm pretty sure it's fruit, seeds on the inside. Spicy fruit. We treat it as a vegetable. Anyway, chili, spicy. Con, I'm pretty sure Italian and Spanish, that's with. Chili with. Carne. Carnivore. Meat eater. Flesh. Chili with meat. Incarnate. What does it mean? In meat. In flesh. God in flesh. Take a look with me. That's exactly what it's saying here in this, these verses. Uh, verse 9, just the beginning. But we see him for a little while, was, sorry, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. What does that mean? He was above the angels, God, and has been made lower than the angels, human. 
Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The Son of God partook, took on what we have, humanity. And, And it means everything that it is to be human. Verse 17, take a look at verse 17, puts it like this. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That means he was made human in every way. Not just human outside shell, but human mind, human will, human intellect, human soul, human emotions, flesh and blood, human body. Everything it is to be human, from embryo to adulthood, was his. And it is just so easy. It is just so easy to to miss the mind-boggling enormity of that. If you don't slow down and reflect on what's happened. That the creator of all things has become a creature in his own creation. That the one who's never needed anything had need for a mother's breast, a teacher's wisdom, a bed in which to rest. The one who has had perfect, blessed happiness now comes to shed tears of grief, know the sting of insults, the pain of suffering. That the immortal one, the source of all life, would choose to become one who is mortal. So as verse 9 puts it, taste death for everyone. I wonder how we think, how we imagine God responds to humanity's problems. I wonder if we imagine that as he looks at all of the, the damage the us facing death, the vandalism of his world, the, the fact that we have chosen not glory but garbage. I wonder how many of us think that in that moment his reaction is to say, well, it wasn't my fault. They're too messy. I've seen in their hearts it's too bleak and black. I wonder how many of us think he, in that moment he would turn away because he's a a policeman in the sky waiting to catch people out, a teacher ready to dish out punishments. I wonder if that's what we think of him, that he might be repulsed, that he might withdraw. Or perhaps we think at best he stood kind of in the doorway, throwing spiritual wet wipes at us, Saying, clean yourselves up, do some Hail Marys, do some, do some good stuff, make yourself better. I wonder if that's what we think he's like. Because he's nothing of the kind. He is the absolute opposite. Because as he sees our plight, he comes to us in it, in the midst of it. 
It's as he sees the brokenness of our humanity. It's as he sees us both as victims and vandals of his world, as the ones that have exchanged his glory for garbage. It's as he sees us facing the terrifying shadow of death, helplessly unable to do anything. It's as he sees that, that the depths of his love are drawn forth for us. Imagine with me, just for a moment, a a little thought experiment. Imagine with me, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, looking at the world. Imagine them looking at the world and seeing all of the problems, seeing all of the mess, seeing the grand canvas and the personal canvas of each heart. How do we think that conversation goes? Do we imagine it goes like, you've got to go and sort it out. Or the son is saying, do I I have to go? Have you seen it? I don't want to. I wouldn't. How can? But that isn't anything like the conversation. As the father sees, he longs, he longs to sort it out. Every parent in the room knows this. Every parent in the room knows this. When you see your son or daughter in trouble, whether someone else has caused it, whether they've caused it themselves, it doesn't matter. When you see them in trouble, your heart races to them because you love them. And that is the tiniest bit of what God is like in this moment. As he sees our plight, his heart races to us and as the son looks on he says send me all I would do is to fix this send me whatever the cost I will go let me go you see there is no reticence no reluctance as they see our plight their heart is for us They move to us. That is what the incarnation shows us. His very heart. It shows us how far he would go, how much he cares. I wonder, do you know that that is God's heart? Do you know that? That is his heart for you and me, for us. In a room like this, though, many of us will still have this feeling. Sure, I can believe that he loves people, but me? I know what's in my heart. I know what's on that personal canvas. I know it. I know what I've done. I know how heavy the guilt weighs. I know what I desire even now, what I'm contemplating doing this week. I'm too bad. I'm too stuck. And so they think, not me. But to you, let me just say again, look. Look at God's heart. Look at what he has done in Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. Look. Look how far he was willing to go, how deeply he cares to take on humanity, to come into the mess, to move towards us. 
and know that he's done that both on the grand scale, but he's done it for you. He's done it for you. You draw forth his love. You do. Today, he comes to you so that you would come to him. Just ask. Speak to him. Nothing will stop him. And come back here next week because today he comes to you that you would come to him. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much that this is your heart. That your heart is to move towards us in all our sin and suffering. That as you see us, you love us. Lord, might we come to you because you have come to us. Amen.